I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan. Two Republicans, two Democrats. I will not pass this responsibility onto a fifth. I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. Sounds like he means it. We'll see. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Oh, I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. All around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today, and welcome to the Bradcast. Coming up, the great energy and climate writer, David Roberts, one of Desi Doyne's favorites. Oh, yes. I know. Uh, <laughs> formerly of Vox.com and Grist.com before that, who now writes his own newsletter called Volts, will be joining us to discuss Joe Biden's proposed infrastructure plan and specifically... <clears throat> the end of decades of fossil fuel industry subsidies that is included in the plan in order to help pay for it. But, as Roberts will explain, as it turns out, the subsidies that Biden is proposing be ended at long last don't actually amount to all that much. And if calculated differently, could actually go much farther toward helping to pay for long overdue improvements to our nation's roads, bridges, railways, and much, much more that are in this very progressive plan that promises to create millions of good-paying jobs and harden the nation's infrastructure to better hold up against our uh, climate emergency that we are now facing. And clean up a lot of pollution, too, that we all pay for. Oh, there's that. Yes. Uh, so that's coming up momentarily. But first, a few quick, if rather noteworthy, news items of the day. A white former suburban Minneapolis police officer, Brooklyn Center's Kim Potter, was charged on Wednesday with second-degree manslaughter for killing 20-year-old black motorist Dwayne Wright in a shooting that has ignited 
days of unrest and clashes between protesters and police. Well, that was fast. Good for the prosecutors. The charge against the former Brooklyn Center police officer was filed just three days after Wright was killed during a traffic stop and as the nearby murder trial progresses for the ex-officer charged with killing George Floyd last May. The former Brooklyn Center police chief has said that uh, Potter, a 26-year veteran and training officer, intended to use her taser on Wright, who allegedly um, was pulled over for expired tags on his vehicle, but fired her handgun instead. However, protesters and Wright's family members say there's no excuse for the shooting and that it shows how the justice system is tilted against blacks, noting that Wright was stopped for an expired car registration and ended up dead. Imran Ali, Washington County, Minnesota's assistant criminal division chief prosecutor, said in a statement announcing the charge, quote, certain occupations carry an immense responsibility and none more so than a sworn police officer, noting that Potter's action caused the unlawful killing of Mr. Wright and she must be held accountable, he said. Ali said he and Washington County attorney Pete Orput uh, met with Wright's family and assured them that no resources would be spared in prosecuting this case. Both Potter and Brooklyn Center's police chief Tim Gannon resigned on Tuesday. Now, whether Wednesday's charge will help to quell the unrest that has exploded in an area of Minnesota just outside of Minneapolis where the trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd continues today. Well, that remains to be seen, though I do hope it does. We will see. Meanwhile, in a bit more accountability news of sorts in our nation's capital today, a scathing report by the U.S. Capitol Police Agency's internal investigator finds that the Capitol Police had clearer advance warnings about the January 6 attack than were previously known, including the potential for violence in which, uh, according to one intelligence report, uh, warned prior to the MAGA mob's insurrection that, quote, Congress itself is the target. That seems pretty clear. Nonetheless, officers were instructed by their leaders not to use the most aggressive tactics to hold off the mob, according to the 104-page report by Inspector General Michael Bolton. Well, there's your problem right there. <laughs> you mean it's not the rock star Michael Bolton? It's not the pop music impresario uh, <laughs> who hopefully was doing this uh, this report. I hope not. It's a different Michael Bolton. Uh, in any event, he criticized the, uh, the way that the Capitol Police had prepared for and responded to the mob violence, according to the New York Times, which reviewed this report in advance of a Capitol Hill hearing on Thursday. Bolton found that the agency's leaders failed to adequately prepare despite explicit warnings that pro-Trump extremists posed a threat to law enforcement and civilians and that the police used defective protective equipment like, for example, riot shields, which shattered on impact because they hadn't been stored in an appropriate climate-controlled environment. That's a problem, too. 
Bolton also found that the police force leaders, for some reason, ordered their civilian disturbance, uh, their civil disturbance unit to refrain from using its most powerful crowd controls like stun grenades in order to put down the onslaught. The report offers the most devastating account to date of the lapses around the most violent attack on the Capitol in two centuries, citing clear evidence received by both the Capitol Police and the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI about the seriousness of the threat, and that Congress and members of Congress themselves were, in fact, the target. Three days before the siege, for example, a Capitol Police intelligence assessment warned of violence from supporters of Donald Trump who believed his false claims that the election had been stolen. Some had even posted a map of the Capitol complex's tunnel system on pro-Trump message boards. On January 5, the day before the attack, the FBI's Norfolk Field Office in Virginia relayed Another threat from an anonymous social media thread that warned of a looming war at the Capitol. The message read, quote, be ready to fight. Congress needs to hear glass breaking, doors being kicked in and blood from their BLM and Pentifa slave soldiers being spilled. Get violent, the message read. Stop calling this a march or rally or a protest. Go there ready for war. We get our president or we die. Nothing else will achieve this goal. That seems pretty clear as well. And if the FBI uh, and, and the DHS knew about the serious threats of an attack on the U.S. Capitol itself, surely the president of the United States was warned about it as well, right? Well, even as he uh, went in front of the White House for a rally on January 6th, as Congress was certifying the election of Joe Biden, he riled up his supporters with baseless information about the election being stolen, encouraging them to head on over to the Capitol and, quote, fight like hell. Although he certainly knew about all of this, and he did that anyway. As to why there was such a failure by Capitol Police to adequately prepare for the assault, given all of these warnings, well, that may be the subject of yet another planned report by the same inspector general. And finally, before we get to my guest today, uh, as noted at the top of the show, and as we reported yesterday, President Joe Biden has determined that all U.S. troops, other than those needed to protect our embassy and diplomatic officials, will be pulled out of Afghanistan finally by this September in advance of the 20-year anniversary of the September 11, 2001 attacks. Today, he made it official with his announcement at the White House, noting that, quote, it's time to end the forever war. Launched in response to 9-11, when some fighting there now in Afghanistan, incredibly enough, were not yet even born. There are still 2,500 U.S. troops stationed in the country, along with those from other NATO nations, totaling uh, roughly 7,000 troops. The president explained his reasons for pulling out and spoke to those who might still be critical of that move. I believed that our presence in Afghanistan should be focused on the reason we went in the first place 
to ensure Afghanistan would not be used as a base from which to attack our homeland again. We did that. We delivered justice to bin Laden a decade ago, and we've stayed in Afghanistan for a decade since. Since then, our reasons for remaining in Afghanistan have become increasingly unclear, even as the terrorist threat that we went to fight evolved. With the terror threat now in many places, keeping thousands of troops grounded and concentrated in just one country at a cost of billions each year makes little sense to me and to our leaders. We cannot continue the cycle of extending or expanding our military presence in Afghanistan, hoping to create ideal conditions for the withdrawal and expecting a different result. I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan. Two Republicans, two Democrats. I will not pass this responsibility onto a fifth. I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. When I came to office, I inherited a diplomatic agreement duly negotiated between the government of the United States and the Taliban that all U.S. forces would be out of Afghanistan by May 1, 2021. It's perhaps not what I would have negotiated myself, but it was an agreement made by the United States government. And that means something. So in keeping with that agreement and with our national interest, the United States will begin our final withdrawal, begin it on May 1 of this year. We'll not conduct a hasty rush to the exit. We'll do it, we'll do it responsibly, deliberately and safely. Our allies and partners have stood beside us shoulder to shoulder in Afghanistan for almost 20 years. And we're deeply grateful for the contributions they have made to our shared mission and for the sacrifices they've borne. The plan has long been in together, out together. We'll be out of Afghanistan before we mark the 20th anniversary of that heinous attack on September 11th. I spoke yesterday with President Bush to inform him of my decision. While he and I have had many disagreements over policy throughout the years, we're absolutely united in our respect and support for the valor, courage, and integrity of the women and men of the United States Armed Forces who served. We as a nation are forever indebted to them and to their families. You all know that less than 1% of Americans serve in armed forces. The remaining 99% of them, we owe them. We owe them. They've never backed down from a single mission that we've asked of them. While we'll not stay involved in Afghanistan militarily, our diplomatic and humanitarian work will continue. We'll continue to support the government of Afghanistan. We will keep providing assistance to the Afghan National Defenses and Security Forces. And we'll continue to support the rights of Afghan women and girls by maintaining significant humanitarian and development assistance. Now, look, I know there are many who will loudly insist that diplomacy cannot succeed without a robust U.S. military presence to stand as leverage. We gave that argument a decade. It's never proved effective. Not when we had 98,000 troops in Afghanistan. And not when we were down to a few thousand. 
Our diplomacy does not hinge on having boots in harm's way, U.S. boots on the ground. American troops shouldn't be used as a bargaining chip between warring parties in other countries. You know, that's nothing more than a recipe for keeping American troops in Afghanistan indefinitely. I also know there are many who will argue that we should stay, stay fighting in Afghanistan because withdrawal would damage America's credibility and weaken America's influence in the world. I believe the exact opposite is true. We went to Afghanistan because of a horrific attack that happened 20 years ago. That cannot explain why we should remain there in 2021. You know, we'll be much more formidable to our adversaries and competitors over the long term if we fight the battles for the next 20 years, not the last 20. No one wants to say that we should be in Afghanistan forever. But they insist now is not the right moment to leave. So when will it be the right moment to leave? One more year? Two more years? Ten more years? Ten, twenty, thirty billion dollars more in the trillion we've already spent? Not now? That's how we got here. We already have service members doing their duty in Afghanistan today whose parents served in the same war. War in Afghanistan was never meant to be a multi-generational undertaking. We were attacked. We went to war with clear goals. We achieved those objectives. Bin Laden is dead and Al-Qaeda is degraded in Iraq, in Afghanistan. And it's time to end the forever war. It's time to end the forever war. That was President Joe Biden speaking today at the White House about his plan to remove all U.S. and NATO troops from Afghanistan by September 11 of this year. Uh, The announcement, which uh, he followed with a visit to Arlington National Cemetery on Wednesday, marks perhaps the most significant foreign policy decision to date in the early going of his presidency. While his decision keeps U.S. forces in Afghanistan four months longer than initially planned under an agreement struck between the Taliban and the Trump administration, it sets what he is clearly describing as a firm end to two decades of war that killed more than 2,200 U.S. troops, wounded 20,000, and cost the U.S. as much as $1 trillion. Now, I was dubious about the announcement when we discussed it on yesterday's show. And frankly, I still am to a certain degree um, that, you know, I'll, I'll believe it when we get to September and see if we're really out or not. But President Biden sounds like he means it there. And so fingers crossed, perhaps we really will now be ending at least our part in America's forever war during his administration and maybe before the end of this year. And, uh, oh, yeah, speaking of Joe Biden, uh, you may have and spending money. uh, You may have heard uh, that he also has a two point two five trillion dollar proposal called the American Jobs Plan for rebuilding our nation's infrastructure, our nation's infrastructure, to harden it against our worsening climate emergency, even while creating millions of good jobs to boot. Of course, that means Republicans are against it. But even some Democrats uh, think that it, A, doesn't go far enough, and B, 
isn't taking nearly enough money from the fossil fuel industry, which arguably helped us get into this climate mess in the first place. Our friend David Roberts, formerly of Vox, now of Volts, joins us next on the broadcast to explain how we may finally have a chance to stop the fossil fuel industry from getting away with murder, both literally and financially. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to do it. Please stop by Bradblog.com slash donate to make an automated monthly pledge of any amount you like or even just a one-time-only contribution to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. The fight for voting rights, civil rights, and to save our planet continues. Please help us continue that fight independently over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate right now. Go ahead, do it right now. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. On the road again. I see what you did. <laughs> Just can't wait to get on the road again. We're going to be talking about infrastructure. So. Roads and bridges. There you go. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I can't wait to get on the road again. Yeah, I can't wait either. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Two weeks ago, President Biden unveiled his sweeping, and I would argue long overdue and very progressive proposal for a $2.25 trillion infrastructure, jobs, and climate package, which he has called the American Jobs Plan. It promises to create millions of good-paying jobs all across the country with much-needed projects to fix, upgrade, and expand long-deteriorating roads, bridges, railways, and much more, all of which need to be hardened to be made more resilient in order to better withstand our ongoing and worsening climate emergency, including the nation's vulnerable and aging electric grid and water systems, improvements for which would include the removal of toxic lead pipes, many of which currently and dangerously serve our nation's homes and schools. And yes, it would also invest a huge amount in the electric vehicle industry and a nationwide charging system as well as invest a great deal in cleaning up old abandoned oil and gas wells that are leaking toxins into our land, air, and water. There's a whole bunch of other stuff in the plan, too, like major investments in our broadband Internet infrastructure and our nation's elder care system, which almost everyone admits is greatly needed, even many Republicans, even as many of them are criticizing such elements of the proposal in order to try and undermine the plan on the basis that many of these things, even including the replacement of toxic lead pipes somehow, do not actually amount to infrastructure investments. But of course, those folks should be largely ignored as their bad faith critiques mask the fact that they are almost certain to vote against any plan put forward by any Democratic president. 
The general elements of Biden's proposal to date are wildly popular across all party lines, at least with voters, if not Republicans in Congress. Even more so than his recently enacted $2 trillion COVID relief package known as the American Rescue Plan. As to uh, the issue of how to pay for the American Jobs Plan, the president revealed last week, as summarized by journalist David Roberts, that the bulk of the revenue will come from a set of changes to corporate tax law, raising the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28 percent which, by the way, would still be lower than it was before the $2 trillion Trump GOP tax cuts in 2017, while also imposing a minimum tax on global profits and discouraging offshore tax havens. Biden's proposed payment plan would also include rollbacks to a host of longtime permanent fossil fuel industry subsidies in the tax code, which environmentalists and progressive Democrats have sought to remove for years, even as they are forced to beg seemingly in every annual budget for similar subsidies for the clean, renewable energy industry, which, as a still developing industry, arguably needs such government subsidies to help quickly ramp up both technology and production to counter our worsening climate emergency. But as Roberts noted recently in his Volts newsletter about the proposal to end direct subsidies to the oil and gas industry, quote, in one sense, this is cool and a big deal insofar as Democrats can actually do it. They've been trying for years to no end. But in another sense, he says, it reveals that the hue and cry over fossil fuel subsidies in the U.S. is somewhat of a tempest in a teapot more a political symbol than a real source of revenue or decarbonization. Roberts argues that the direct U.S. fossil fuel subsidies to be clawed back by Biden's plan are not really, quote, that big in the grand scheme of things. Even the Treasury Department noted in a recent report that ending the subsidies to the oil and gas industry, quote, would have little impact on gas or energy prices. Not that that will keep the fossil fuel industry, frankly, from screaming bloody murder against the loss of what essentially amounts to decades of free, yes, socialist government money for the industry. But, notes Roberts, there is a lot more money that could be clawed back from the industry in what are known as indirect subsidies that these companies enjoy year in and year out and have done so now for generations in this country. Joining us now to make some sense of all of this is our friend, the great David Roberts, who has written for many, many years about politics, climate and energy and the confluence thereof. Yes, long before many even understood the critical confluence thereof. Uh, after years writing for Vox.com and Grist.com, before that, he now publishes his own newsletter called Volts, which you can and should sign up at Sign up for at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf. Oh, Mr. Roberts, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad, good to be back. Now, uh, of course, isn't it just like you lefties, David? Uh, once a president has finally called for ending fossil fuel subsidies to now find a reason why it's just not good enough. So... Uh, how much are we talking about in Biden's plan, and why isn't it enough? Well, 
it's not, I'm not attempting to criticize. I think it's great that they're rolling these subsidies back. It's nothing but a good thing. The question is just sort of like, what's the size of the good thing? How significant is the good thing? You know, and there's been a, a lot of argument and discussion in activist circles, climate advocate circles for a long time about these subsidies. And it's become sort of like a shorthand. I think even sort of the general public has gotten the impression that these companies get tons of subsidies. And so I, I just thought it was worth pointing out that while this is significant and interesting and it's, and it's um, quite relevant politically, which mm-hmm. we can discuss later, mm-hmm. it's just not that much money, right? So, so they're going after these direct um, kind of tax subsidies and loopholes mm-hmm. where the oil and gas industry gets these special favors uh, and it, the Biden plan comes up with $35 billion over 10 years mm. of those, of those tax, uh, favors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the context of a $2.2 trillion bill, yeah. you know, like the, the, the tax plan he released, he alleges he's going to raise, sort of the idea here is the, 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 the jobs plan will spend $2.2 trillion over 10 years, mm-hmm. and the tax plan will raise $2.5 trillion over 15 years. Mm-hmm. So there's a little wonkiness there. But, but if you're trying to raise $2.5 trillion, you know, uh, $35 billion is just it's like a 60th of that. I forget the, yeah. <laughs> I forget the exact math, but it's, it's just not... In, in terms of pure revenue, in terms of like actual dollars, it's mm-hmm. not a ton of money. And we're talking about an industry uh, that, I mean, when you divide $35 billion, uh, by 10 and then uh, split it up among the industry, I mean, we're really talking about a drop in the bucket for the yeah. uh, for the industry yeah. itself. They, it seems one, like one thing it's not going to hurt them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing before we move on, it's just one thing worth noting. There are other, um, you know, sort of assessments of these direct tax subsidies, mm-hmm. like um, Omar, uh, Ilan Omar and Bernie Sanders introduced a bill called the In Polluter Welfare Act, which goes after these direct subsidies, and they managed to pull together $15 billion a year, as opposed to $3.5 billion mm-hmm. a year in tax changes. And there are other assessments that go as high as $20 billion a year. And, and, and in the end, that comes down to sort of like how you how you assess whether some of these tax um, provisions are really subsidies or not. Like the oil and gas industry will tell you that a ton of that stuff that they've found and are calling subsidies mm-hmm. are just tax provisions meant to encourage business and manufacturing that are received by a whole range of industries. In other words, like mm-hmm. oil and gas doesn't get them specially, it just gets them like all the other industries get them. So there's a ton of argument about what. And ultimately, it comes down to sort of, you know, judgment calls about where exactly the line is on what exactly counts as a subsidy. But I would just notice that, note that even the difference between 3.5 billion a year and 20 billion a year seems big if you just hone in on the one year. But even on those terms, even if you took the most expansive possible definition of direct subsidies, you know, you're still a drop in the bucket of the total amount of money (laughs) that's being raised here or the total amount of money that would be raised uh, if you went after the indirect subsidies. Well, that's let's talk about those indirect subsidies, because I think everyone understands direct subsidies, and no matter how you look at it in the tax code, and uh, whether the way Biden does it or the way Omar and Sanders do it, 
Um, the actual universe of money that is is made or at least not spent by the fossil fuel industry is much, much larger than, uh, than, than what we're talking about with the direct subsidies when we include what are known as indirect subsidies. Can you explain the idea of indirect subsidies and, and how they come into play here? Sure. Well, indirect subsidies are kind of a new, <laughs> a new term attached to an old concept, which is just about um, what economists call externalities. So fossil fuel companies produce these products that produce a lot of social harm, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so harm in terms of air pollution that they generate, which then, you know, produces health costs and people miss work. And then there's the climate damages that they do when they're burned. There's sort of land uh, pollution. There's mm -hmm. abandoned oil and gas wells at the end of their life, like those cost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and the oil and gas industry itself doesn't pay any of those costs. So when, you're, when your product imposes all these costs and you don't pay them, the public steps in and pays mm -hmm. them. You know, it's like the kids with asthma yeah. who, are, <laughs> who are paying rather than the fossil fuel companies. So those... Um, externalities, as they're called, have always been kind of the premise for why we would need a carbon tax, why we would want to put uh, a tax on carbon so that you can recoup all these damages that the oil and gas industry are not paying for. Some people recently, the IMF kind of, I think, officially did this. Some people have started calling those subsidies, basically. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're imposing health costs and you're not paying them... yeah and the public is paying them, the public is effectively, indirectly subsidizing your product. And there's a lot of argument in the energy world about whether it's a good thing to use the word subsidies for those or whether you might want to keep those distinct from the direct subsidies so we can at least keep some clarity. Because mm -hmm. what's happening now is like, some people count those in the subsidies and some people don't. And so we're having these two conversations about subsidies with wildly different numbers and the public, I think, doesn't always know what the hell's going on. So there's some fuzziness mm -hmm. there. But the point, the point is, there's all these damages that come from fossil fuels that the industry is not paying for. And yeah. if and if you went after those, yeah. then you're talking real money. Well, I, you know, and I think about it sort of as you're explaining it. You know, the way uh, these big companies, whether it's you know Walmart or McDonald's, and they underpay their employees, which means their employees end up collecting. Uh, uh, food stamps, which are paid for by the government. So in, in effect, the government is subsidizing McDonald's and Walmart. And in a similar way, the government and, and the public at large, you know, when they have to deal with all of the uh, medical problems, the asthma, and, you know, in these towns where you've got, uh, you know, wells that are leaking and, and uh, uh, refineries and so forth, we end up paying for that. So does the Biden plan in any way uh, begin to even, uh, the, the infrastructure plan, does it even begin to deal with those externalities and, and clawing back that money that the uh, fossil fuel industry is enjoying? Uh, n no, not really, for, for a bunch of reasons. Actually, there's one provision in the plan that would spend, I think, $6 billion on a program to cap abandoned oil and gas wells. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of climate, you know, a lot of uh, green types are, criticizing 
Biden for that, because they're like, well, there is another subsidy <laughs> for mm. the oil and gas industry. Right. Even as you're cranking some back, you're, you're, you're doing another one. Like, the oil and gas industry ought to pay to clean up those wells. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, like, they're not going to, you know, there's like all these abandoned coal mines and, and coal ash pits and all this yeah. in Wyoming and in Appalachia. They're not going to clean those up. Of course, it's the public that's going to clean those up. We always should have seen that coming. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, to get at the indirect subsidies would require a lot more than just tweaking the tax code <laughs> around <laughs> around mm-hmm. the edges. To do that, you would need to pass a fairly stiff price on carbon. Mm-hmm. And and that's not something Biden is just going to try to like sneak into <laughs> another <laughs> some other big bill like that would that would be so controversial that would absolutely dominate press coverage it would absolutely ensure total republican opposition it would just be like a bomb inside this bill like if it, you know that we can discuss the sort of politics of carbon pricing and mm-hmm. and the, sort of the way people view them now but like that's definitely not something you can sneak by like part of the beauty part of the political beauty of this bill and the previous bill the covid recovery bill that mm-hmm. was passed uh you know a couple months ago it, i mean there's like good good sides and bad sides to government being so dysfunctional but like one of the <laughs> one of the consequences of our government being so dysfunctional is that when you have a chance to pass a bill you know it's so hard to pass anything these days anything at all right when you have a chance to bill, pass a bill, your entire caucus just wants to shove everything in it, right? You get you end up with these giant Christmas tree bills with mm-hmm. all this stuff hanging off them because there just aren't that many vehicles to get things through. So yeah. when you have one, everyone wants to shove everything in. Of course, you know we're getting you're hearing a lot of criticism about this about mm-hmm. all this stuff that's not infrastructure. So, but the but the ups, I mean. In a sense, that's dysfunctional, and I wish we had a Congress that worked. But one of the upsides of that is you just can't fight over everything in a bill this big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's just not time. Right. You know what I mean? So, yes, I do. So, like, the opponents, the opponents of the bill, or, like, Manchin, right? Like, Manchin needs to be seen, you know... The optics. He needs to be seen objecting to something and getting some changes done so he can show West Virginians what a maverick he is, right? Whatever. Right. So whatever. He picks the corporate tax rate or he picks any specific provision. You know, the public sees a big fight over that provision. They see Dems make some compromises, and then the rest of the thing passes. But the rest of the thing is huge, right? <laughs> containing, like, dozens and dozens of things that never even come up in the public well, discussion you know, at all. So, like... There's a lot in here that's amazing that could pass without ever really being discussed or debated at all. Or, or noticed. And I want to talk about some of those things yeah. that you that you described as really cool. But as you're talking, I'm thinking, oh, great. In that case, why don't we go ahead and put a carbon tax in there? It will... Oh, uh, they would notice that. Uh, no, I know <laughs> they, they would. would. That. that would be the point. <laughs> of course, Joe Manchin, uh, long may he uh, live... Uh, would, of course, uh, flip out about it. We could have a big fight about it. We could say, okay, Joe, we'll remove the carbon tax. And then everything else gets to go through. Just an idea. But, yeah, looking stepping back, getting even away from the pay-fors for the moment, because, you know, many uh, progressives like... Uh, modern monetary theorist Stephanie Kelton, who we've had on this show, she argues that it's not really anything that we should be worrying about at all right now. So I'm curious, in the larger picture, your general thoughts about the plan and some of those things that you described as 
uh, really cool stuff, I believe, in one of your uh, uh, Volt's uh, newsletters. Really cool stuff that is in there that has not gotten much coverage. I mean... I mean, there are literally thousands, I mean, there's like thousands of things in here. So like the vast bulk of specific provisions in this thing uh-huh. have received no discussion a- at all, which is like, you know, if you're a goo-goo, good procedure type of Democrat, you're like, oh, that's not a good way to govern a country. But in this screwed up situation <laughs> yes. we're in, in this dysfunctional country, it seems like, fine, I'll take it, uh-huh. I'll take it. But but there's tons of stuff. I mean, I mean, just this just this stuff on transportation alone. You know, like this is something climate people have been pulling their hair about out about for years. Is whenever infrastructure comes up, mm-hmm. everybody talks about cars, bridges, roads, and bridges is mm-hmm. the is the friggin' phrase. And even Democrats are pre- have been pretty bad on this historically. But this bill is like plows a ton. Like this is the first, you know legislation from a democrat that might actually pass that really shows that the democratic party institutionally has absorbed the fact that we're on the front end of a giant transition to electric vehicles Mm -hmm. and it would behoove us as a country to not be the caboose Mm. of that transition Mm -hmm. and to stand up domestic manufacturing of EVs mm-hmm. and domestic manufacturing of batteries and domestic supply chains for all the materials involved in the batteries and the EVs. And, um, you know, so there's a million provisions in there that plow money into that, into getting electric vehicle charging stations mm-hmm. built. They're trying to get 500,000 charging stations up and running by, by 2030. They're going to start, and this absolutely is <laughs> dear to my heart they're going to go after diesel transit buses in cities which are to me like at, ought to be absolutely the number one candidate for electrification uh-huh. because we know we have electric buses yeah. we know they work diesel buses are loud as hell i mean people I think at this point, just screen them out. But just next time you're downtown in a city and a diesel bus goes by, just pause and pay attention. It's a jet engine, yeah. literally a jet engine. So it'll be so much quieter and so much cleaner. Diesel pollution is terrible. Yeah. So there's there's provisions in here to replace 50,000 transit buses and 20% of yellow school buses, which are also... Mm-hmm. Just an absolute choice target for electrification, because right now we're pumping diesel pollution, particulate pollution, directly into the lungs of literally the most innocent and vulnerable, yeah. you know, members yeah. of our society, kids. So there's a there's there's money in there to um, boost the clean bus program, and the idea is to eventually get on a path to 100 percent clean buses, which is just amazing. Uh, well, and that's why, and then, as you're, as one, you're the, the, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. The, the one other transporta- transportation thing I would want to mention is that sort of like casually, <laughs> sort of casually mentions we're going to electrify the entire federal fleet. Oh, yeah. Which is <laughs> 645,000 vehicles. Right. Which is is fantastic, and you're right. There hasn't been much coverage of that, much discussion of that. Although I got to say, David Roberts, when uh, you know you talk about the the yellow uh, the school bus uh, electrification, we're talking about uh, initially in any event twenty percent of the uh, those school buses. I think to myself, 
why wouldn't we go to 100% of those school buses, which raises the larger picture uh, that I know uh, AOC has complained about, that in the end, as large as this package is, it is nowhere near as large as is needed as it should be and in fact when you you know break it down by 10 years it's really not all that much money should we be going much much further at least in the initial uh you know package that is being introduced here before it gets whittled down by you know lord and savior joe manchin well I mean, this gets back to the perennial question, like when you're <laughs> American, particularly on climate change, mm-hmm. which I think is mostly what AOC is referring to, you know, sort of the Green New Deal people, mm-hmm. uh, sort of the idea behind the Green New Deal is plowing $10 billion into this stuff over the next 10 years. Ten That's trilli- what they say tr- trillion, trillion dollars. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, it's much, all right. Much more than $10 billion. $10 trillion over the next 10 years. Yeah. Which is, you know, a lot more than two point two trillion. So, in a sense, it's enough. But, but it's the same as ever with climate politics. Where we are is so ludicrously far away from where we need to be Mm -hmm. that it just becomes difficult to judge anything in the middle. There, like, is this a good big step or is this a grossly inadequate step? Mm -hmm. I mean, yes. It's both, right? right? Like right. everything everything we're going to do on climate change for the next, you know, decades mm-hmm. is going to fit that description. It's going to be like big, but not big enough. Right. Everything is like that. So, so in a sense, you know, AOC is right. We, we need and could spend a lot more and could use a lot more. But I think if viewed against the baseline of existing political realities, yeah. <laughs> Viewed against the baseline of Joe Biden having a whisker-thin Senate mm-hmm. majority and viewed against the fact that to pass at all, this will e- this bill will either have to go through reconciliation or the filibuster will have to be destroyed, which mm-hmm. is itself a huge, big political fight. I... Personally, as a as an observer of American politics, ha, w- am incredibly pleasantly surprised by both this bill and the COVID recovery bill mm-hmm. that came before it. Both yeah. of them were super big and ambitious relative to what you might expect from today's Democrats. Right? Yeah. <laughs> relative yeah. to what you might expect from Democrats, Biden is really genuinely going big, like he said he was going to. And to me, that's just like... I mean, I know AOC's role is to push him farther, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, she's got to do that. She's got to say that. But in terms of, like, where, if you'd asked me, like, whatever, six months ago, like, how Joe Biden w- would president, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> e- everything that's happened since he got elected to me has just been a pleasant surprise, and, incredibly heartening. And uh, aside from going big, uh, it also targets... Actual people, actual Americans, as opposed to shoveling all of this money to the corporations, which we have seen for at least the last 40 years. So that's one of the things that that I'm delighted about so far. Uh, All of this said, and I've just got a a minute or two here, David Roberts, but I do want to get this uh, uh, two points. Uh, One, as we've (laughs) mentioned, uh, this is all likely going to come down to West Virginia's Joe Manchin. No, I don't think they're going to do away with the filibuster. I think we'll be lucky if we get this to go through the 
uh, uh, reconciliation. Uh, so Manchin, as you describe our emperor and benefactor, um, <laughs> you know, it's going to be up to whether he feels like doing any of this. And surely by now, coming from a state where the coal industry has been absolutely devastated, surely he knows that the jig is up and that it is time to bring new energy, if you will, to that dying industry. No. Do you, I mean, do, do you have any sense of where the hell Joe Manchin is on this? And if he realizes, hey, now is a great time to get a whole bunch of money for West Virginia. Well, everyone who follows American politics has now developed a minor in Manchin studies. And I don't know that I'm any better at it than anybody <laughs> else. But the, the basic thing about Manchin that he's got, he's got and is proclaiming two incommensurate sets of beliefs, right? Like on the one hand, he knows there's an energy transition happening. Mm -hmm. He knows it's inevitable. He knows coal is on the way out. Right. He knows West Virginia needs money yeah. for transition. He knows that the country is way behind on infrastructure in general. He knows that. And he knows that the big mistake Democrats made the last time they were in this situation back in 2008 was was fiddling around with process too much, mm -hmm. wasting too much time, and getting too little done, right? So he knows all that. But then, on the other hand, he's out saying, I don't want to pass anything else through reconciliation. It's rude. I don't want to get yes. rid of the filibuster. It's rude. I want us to all work together and find a way to compromise. That's our job. And, and Republicans have a responsibility to stop just saying no. Well, like, thanks, Joe, for pointing that out, but they are going to say no. So, right. so he can't genuinely believe both those things at the same time. He can't genuinely be that devoted to process to the point that he's willing to sacrifice the bill and then also be devoted to infrastructure and to West Virginia. So he's either to, you know, double-talking about something or playing some long game, hmm. or maybe he's just like compartmentalized in his head and believes a lot of contradictory crap like lots of people do and, and just doesn't, you know, like maybe he doesn't know what he's doing either no one knows brad and our entire the fate of the world hinges on it yeah that's all that's all that hinges on it and it, it, it that's not actually a, an overstatement it's really no, true it really isn't it's all coming down to this guy at least right now as long as all the Demo other democrats remain healthy um yeah, and that's not even getting into cinema etc like he's yeah. you know he's not the only problem well, uh, lastly, I, I know that you were very excited at uh, Volts today in announcing the kickoff of a new series you are doing on batteries, uh, which may or may not sound so exciting to our listeners uh, as it might to you. I don't know. <laughs> but I, it does to me. So let me just say that. I'm very excited about it. So I'm going to give you, uh, and, and it's totally unfair, uh, but about 30 seconds here to give us a quick taste of why listeners should be excited by batteries right now and in the bargain why they should sign up for your Volt's newsletter to read about it. Sure. Uh, batteries are crucial for decarbonizing the two most emitting sectors of the U.S. economy, transportation, right? We know that batteries are used for EVs, mm -hmm. and then electricity. We know that to integrate more renewable in electricity into the grid, you need balancing tools mm -hmm. for flexibility, and batteries are those. So the more 
the more batteries you've got and the cheaper they are and the better they perform, the faster you decarbonize transportation, the faster you decarbonize electricity. So with that in mind, I'm digging into sort of like what, are the, what is the leading battery chemistries? What are some of the alternative chemistries that are having a go at competing with lithium-ion and sort of what are the upper bounds of performance that we might expect? Basically, just like mm-hmm. if you've ever wondered... What's going on with batteries? Uh, <laughs> and who hasn't? Will, will, yes. And who hasn't? This will tell you everything you need to know. They're really at the heart of decarbonization, though. And there really is a, uh, a huge push right now in the industry. There's a lot of yeah, stuff it's happening. Really, yeah, it's super. I mean, if you're into, like, engineering and, and, and invention and yeah. entrepreneurship, and there's just, like, really fun to, like, at fundamental chemistry terms, there's just a lot of interesting science uh-huh. and invention and, and, going on right now. I'm, and if you're into a car that uh, gets 800 miles to the charge, uh, you might be pretty excited about it as well. Uh, I will point folks, of course, to that newsletter and uh, strongly recommend that folks sign up for it. You can do so at volts.wtf. That's actually... <laughs> the uh, website for it volts.wtf just to give you an idea who you're dealing with in this letter david roberts uh writes the volts newsletter you can find him on the twitters at now at dr volts just think of dr volts david roberts always great speaking with you my friend hope to do it again soon thanks brad you bet all right quick break and we're back with our Closing few minutes on the broadcast. Not much left. No. Well, I better get out. <laughs> All right. That's uh, whatever. Straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. Hit the stinger. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the broadcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I like that song. What's it called? <laughs> all That Glitters by Earl. I like it. Uh, all right. Uh, let's see. Well, we got just a minute or two here. There were hundreds of prominent executives from a bunch of high-profile companies like Amazon, Google, Starbucks, etc., that uh, signed a statement opposing discriminatory legislation that makes voting harder. They took out a full two-page ad spread in wow. the New York Times today. They called democracy a, quote, beautiful American ideal and said for it to work, quote, we must ensure the right to vote for all of us, saying we all should feel responsibility to defend the right to vote and oppose any discriminatory legislation on measures that restrict or prevent any eligible voter from having an equal and fair opportunity to cast a ballot. Uh, Anyway, that is very good. That is very nice. I hope to have more on that actually in the days ahead. But as I've stated, I'm I'm happy to see, you know, hundreds of major corporations politely supporting the right to vote 
In response to these GOP efforts all across the country to make voting more difficult for certain people, uh, but it really should not take corporations coming out in opposition to voter suppression for Republicans to give a damn if, in fact, they do. Uh, the voices of the actual voters, as I've said many times, should be enough, but clearly it isn't. So happy that the corporations, I guess, are jumping in. But, and there's always a but, uh, <laughs> but we will have more on that in the days ahead. Uh, yeah, be- they, they, they need some teeth to this, so I'm glad they're saying it, but I would like to see some more action. Before we get out, uh, I just need to, to note, uh, during the break, Desi Doyen, you said you agreed with something that I said <laughs> while talking to David Roberts, and it's so rare that you would do that that I think I want to point that out. What what did you okay? Uh, so like one, that I that's said? not true. But okay. yes, secondly, yeah. yes, yeah. I did think that your idea of going ahead and putting in a carbon tax into Biden's infrastructure proposal sounded like actually a really good idea as far as you know if you're a poker player, put in more in your in your hot top yeah. bid so that yeah. you can then negotiate back and say, okay, fine, we'll take out the carbon tax. Yeah. But you'll have to take the rest of it. Yeah. So that's a great idea. Yeah, dude, if they put in a carbon tax into the infrastructure bill, that's all that Fox News would be talking about. Their heads would be exploding. They couldn't think about anything else. They'd be outraged about it, yada, yada, yada. And then at the end, oh, yeah, okay, well, we'll take it out. We'll just do everything else in the proposal. Although there is a caveat to that, that with uh, Fox News and the right-wing media losing their minds about it, that they would demonize it and potentially poison the well for independent voters and Republicans who actually agree with elements of the plan. So there is there is a risk to it. I'm going to stick with the part where you said you liked my idea <laughs> okay. and that we should go with it. Uh, anyway, very good. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer. Thanks to my guest today, David Roberts of Volts.WTF. <laughs> and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. It is always an honor and a privilege. If you missed any portion of today's show... I think it wasn't a bad one. You can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. I hope you will share it with your friends and your family and your neighbors and your enemies. And that, of course, is made possible by those of you who support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Yes, that's where you go to help us out because... Uh, Without you, we would not be on your public airwaves beating up on the fossil fuel industry. You can also drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 